Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If we cast a long view over the early modern period, taking in the whole era, one of the dominant trends we see is empire building. While today we might think of the history of England, of France and of Spain in silos, the reality is that the leaders of those kingdoms saw themselves then as in charge of something bigger than their state. Henry VIII was termed Henry VIII, by the grace of God, King of England, France and Ireland, defender of the faith and of the Church of England, and also of Ireland in Earth, supreme head. There are some serious claims to realms both physical and spiritual here. So if we examine England, we really should make sure we understand its relationship to its empire. And the very first of those colonies was Ireland. What events and actions led to the English conquest of Ireland? How did the relationship between England and Ireland change over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries? And how did the Irish people respond to such subjugation? I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Jane Olmeyer, Erasmus Smith's Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Olmeyer has published extensively on early modern Irish and British history, including the Cambridge History of Ireland, Today, she joins me to discuss her most recent brilliant book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, which will be published this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Olmeyer, to Not Just the Tudors. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Now, I wonder if we can discuss the attitude of England's monarchy to Ireland from the mid-16th century onwards, because in a previous podcast with Professor Christopher McGinn, I discussed the long roots of England's control over Ireland. So I'm wondering if we could pick up with the Kingship Act of 1541, which you describe as transforming Ireland's status from a patchwork of feudal lordships into an imperial kingdom. So can you tell us about this act and why it should be regarded as revolutionary in the relationship between England and Ireland? So the first thing to remember is that Ireland was colonised in the 12th century and it's very much an English colony. But until the passing of the Kingship Act, what you had were different, if you want, categories of subject in Ireland. And what's important about the Kingship Act was it made everybody the subjects of the Tudor monarchy. So it didn't, if you want, identify those of Norman ancestry, which by this point are being called the Old English of Ireland, as being the subjects and the Gaelic Irish, who up until now weren't regarded as subjects. It gets rid of that distinction between the ethnic groups living on the island of Ireland. And in that sense, it's extremely important. It also is important because all of a sudden, Ireland now is given the status of a kingdom. But I would argue and argue in the book 
that in fact, it's very much a colony and it remains very much a colony, even though it does have the status of a kingdom. And people living in Ireland would like to be treated as subjects and call for that repeatedly. But in practice, it's very much an unequal relationship. It's a very colonial relationship. Is that the way that the English viewed their relationship with the Irish? Or perhaps I should ask more specifically, the later Tudor monarchs viewed it? That's an interesting question because obviously it does vary. I think the later Tudors, Ireland was a perennial problem for them because from, if you want a security perspective, Ireland was always potentially a backdoor into England, Susanna. And we see this very much, of course, in 1588 with the Spanish Armada. But time and again, Ireland represents a security threat to England. So the need to conquer and control Ireland is very much an imperative for the Tudors and, of course, the Stuarts as well. So Tree said the Irish are our subjects, and they were. But let's be very clear that... England needed to dominate Ireland, to control Ireland, to conquer Ireland. And that happens in the 1590s during the Nine Years' War. And then with the death of Elizabeth and the accession of King James VI of Scotland and first of England, Ireland and Scotland in 1603, all of a sudden the military conquest of Ireland has been completed. That ticks that box. What is key now is to colonise, and I use the word civilise in inverted commas, but to colonise and to civilise Ireland. Yes, I was really interested to learn from your research that the Protestant Reformation added an extra vigour to the Crown's desire to, quote unquote, civilise the Irish. Why was that? Well, obviously, the Reformation, Ireland's an interesting place because it's the one country in Europe where the Counter-Reformation succeeds and the Protestant Reformation fails. But from the 1530s, the Crown and, if you want, the English administration in Ireland wanted to convert the Irish to Protestantism, but they remain loyal to Catholicism. That continues But becoming Protestant was another indicator of civility. So in addition to wanting the Irish to use English agricultural practices, to use English commercial practices, especially markets and money, to speak the English language, to use English legal systems. Of course, the Crown wanted the English religion to be the predominant one, and that was Protestantism. But it doesn't work out that way. And that commitment to Catholicism adds to this sense of the Irish being uncivil and barbarous. So it's an important way of distinguishing the Irish and their Catholicism. On the other hand, is a unifying factor for the Irish against the English and the growth of, if you want, Irish nationalism. Again, I would use that word in inverted commas, but we do see in this period Catholicism being a unifying factor and breaking down traditional rivalries between the Old English and the Gaelic Irish. So this verb civilise in this context really seems to mean anglicise. The civilising has been criticised as a cultural impoverishment and degradation because it's religion and it's education and languages you've mentioned, but it's even things like clothing and hairstyles. Why were these outward trappings of culture so important to the English? 
Well, it's really cultural imperialism. That's what we would use the language of today. The English want the Irish to become English in everything, whether it's their dress, their culture, their language, their practices, whether it's economic or legal, inheritance, land. I mean, everything needs to become English. And it is English, not British. It's Anglicisation very strongly indeed, even though the Scots, of course, are involved in the venture after 1603. It's about control. You want to be able to control this Catholic people who are rebellious, who are seen as a security threat. And that cultural imperialism goes hand in hand with military conquest and with colonisation. And it's very much part of that overall strategy of bringing Ireland under the remit of England. Because education was a tool of Anglicanisation, we see Elizabeth I founding Trinity College Dublin in 1592, quote, that civility might be increased. Were educational opportunities open to all? Did this tool of civility work? (laughs) Well, obviously, education is critical. And let's start with Trinity, which was very much a tool of empire. It was founded by Elizabeth in 1592 to civilise the barbarous Irish, to make them Protestant and to stop them being educated in the continental colleges. But at the end of the day, Elizabeth would have preferred certainly the Irish elite to have been educated in England. Oxford was the preferred destination. I think Cambridge was regarded as a bit too Protestant. But Oxford, especially Christchurch, and to a lesser extent Magdalen, would have been the destination of many Gaelic and Old English Catholic lords. They would have sent their sons there or would have been required to have sent their sons there. So they might be, we would use that word indoctrination, indoctrinated in everything English and, of course, the Protestant religion. But in terms of Ireland itself, we do see schools being established, especially on the foot of plantation. And many of the schools in Ulster, some of them survive to this day, would have been what we call plantation foundations. And again, the purpose of these schools was to educate boys, members of the landed elite, and to give them a humanist education and a Protestant education and to ensure that they became civilised. Now, again, let's use that word in inverted commas because it was the English version of civility. And I wouldn't want to say anything that would suggest the Irish were in no way civilised. They had a very vibrant culture. It was an oral culture rather than a written culture, but obviously it didn't accord with English versions of civility. But education was key both in Ireland and in England. And the other place that the Irish went to be civilised were the Inns of Court in London. The Inns of Court were hugely important because the Irish were civilised, again, in inverted commas, they were exposed to the cultural activities of the court. Some of them learned a bit of law when they were there. But what's interesting, my own work has shown this, that they went to learn English law in order to subvert it back in Ireland itself, because very quickly the Catholic landed elite realised that in order to survive in this civilising slash anglicising world, people really needed to have a good understanding of English common law so they could use it to their own advantage rather than be at the mercy 
of lawyers who were working, say, for the Crown or who had a very different agenda. But certainly to begin with, the English thought this was a good thing until they realised, in fact, what was actually going on was rather different. And this is what makes this whole process of anglicisation so interesting. It has so many unintended consequences in Ireland and people engage with it in different ways and with different motivation, if you want. Yes, that is interesting. I and mean, it's exactly the sort of pattern that we see in later colonial countries where people like Gandhi and Nehru go to England to be trained in the end to turn that against the country that is colonising them. That's exactly it. One thing that I'm struck by, I mean, it almost seems a contradiction. The English think they're bringing civility to Ireland, but in the early modern period, Ireland was the bloodiest theatre of war in Europe, and you have to fight for that title in the early modern period. So as well as this kind of cultural and political and legal imperialism, we've got this, what you could describe as a bed of pikes and use of force. Can you give us a sense of the sort of grim realities of civilising the Irish and how the English justified such violence? I think we need to be very careful about the language we use here, but it was very clear that the English wanted to exterminate large swathes of the Irish population. We see this in the later 16th century, particularly during the Nine Years' War, where English military strategy basically involved slash and burn tactics. So you were destroying crops, you were destroying communities. Women and children were particularly targeted by the military forces. And we see this happening very, very clearly in the 1590s. And we see it again when civil war breaks out. It's not civil war, it's a colonial war breaks out after 1640 in the early 1640s. And that's justified by texts by English writers, especially a man called Edmund Spencer, who would be known in other quarters as a great Renaissance poet. Spencer had been a planter or a colonist in Ireland, and he wrote a very important tract called A View of the Present State of Ireland. And that basically called for the destruction of the Irish people and everything Irish, and its replacement then with English colonists and everything English. So there was this ideology that went alongside these very extreme military tactics that was used, obviously, to justify the extirpation of peoples, of communities, but also, of course, with the confiscation of millions of Irish acres. And that ideology that Spencer and other English writers developed during this period became foundational texts in the later British Empire. And we see Spencer still being read widely up into the 19th century during the heyday of the British Empire. And that culture of othering and ethno superiority that Spencer develops influences, of course, later writers and thinkers as well. So, I mean, what happens in Ireland in this period is hugely, if you want, important and influential in the development of the later British Empire, not just in 19th century, but also at the time, because these ethnocentric ideas and these sort of fire and sword military tactics were not just in Ireland, they were also taken into the Caribbean. 
and were deployed against Irish people there. So, you know, the Irish were uncivil, rude and barbarous in Ireland, but also in the Atlantic world, where many of them either migrated to or were forced to migrate to over the course of the 17th century. What you're telling us is very much this sense that Ireland is the test case. It's the first colony and the approach taken is bloody and brutal from the beginning. And it completely changes our view of someone like Spencer, who, if people think of him as the author of The Fairy Queen, but actually when we want to talk about Renaissance literature, even that has its toes stuck into this dirty, dirty water of colonialism and a brutal colonialism at that. It turns on its head in some ways our sense of this golden age of the Elizabethan reign to consider Ireland and bring Ireland back into the picture. And I found it so interesting earlier when you said James became king of England, Scotland and Ireland. And I just don't hear that. I hear England and Scotland all the time. But actually, we've got to keep putting Ireland back into the picture. It's great to hear you say that, Susanna, because that's what I'm sort of hoping that this book will do. What it does is it complicates the colonizer. So it's inviting England as the dominant colonizing force in this period to rethink its own colonial narrative as well, which I think, given the politics of the moment, is quite challenging, but I think utterly essential. Ireland complicates the story because Ireland is both colonial, but maybe we'll come on to it. The Irish, of course, are active imperialists themselves. So it is a complicated story. And I think as we look again at the role that Ireland played, if you want, in the British Empire, we need to look at both sides of it and acknowledge both sides of it. Can we talk then about imperial intermediaries, people like the Fitzgeralds and the Butlers and other peers on whom the Crown tried to rely? I suppose we might consider them collaborators? Were these men actually just another weapon of war? Well, they're certainly active imperial agents. Again, they wouldn't have used that language themselves. So some actively are. In other words, they become loyal servants of the crown, they convert to Protestantism, and then they try to convert their family and their kin base. And some do that more successfully than others. And of course, then they benefit. They become Rich, usually they get additional lands, they get great royal favour, they marry into the English aristocracy, they definitely benefit themselves in the process. Others, however, are very interesting because they may collaborate to use that language, but they then use that collaboration to survive. So it's a much more pragmatic engagement with the sort of realpolitik of the day and maybe one member of the family will convert, but actually the rest will remain Catholic. They'll do everything they can to protect Catholic culture and the practice of Catholicism on their landed estates. So again, you know, one size never fits all. And we have, if you want, gradations of agency. But without a shadow of a doubt, many of these great Irish families are agents. And it just depends on who and where and when you look at the extent to which they do collaborate. And they will change sides when it suits them as well. We see this very clearly, of course, with the arrival of 
Cromwell, or they'll go over to for favour from the King of Spain. So again, it's a complicated story, but it is one reason why England is able to rule Ireland, because without the support of power brokers, especially in the West and the Northwest, you know, Ireland is very remote from London, especially the West of Ireland. So the Crown is very dependent on these power brokers, men like Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, or the Butlers, very important, the Fitzgeralds, very important, the O'Briens, you know, some of these families. The Crown could not have operated in Ireland without their agency and support. And increasingly, of course, there's an army stationed in Ireland, especially in the early 17th century or in the 16th century. What was critical was securing the support of these agents. And they were effectively collaborating with the Crown, as I say, but they used it in different ways to suit their own agendas as well. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moment that shaped the destiny of England, the Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make it clear in your book that it's land, not control over people, that became the basis of political power. And we see this in the creation of plantations in early modern Ireland, using land that's been seized from rebels, and then these plantations are awarded to English landlords. How was giving land to those seeking commercial gain a recipe for political success, and also, I suppose, a recipe for disaster? given the rebellion against the crown that erupted in 1641? (laughs) That's a big question, Susanna. So let me try and unpack it. But the expropriation of Irish land, I argued, and we're talking about eight million acres over the course of the 17th century between what happens with the plantations and then the Cromwellian landed revolution of the 1650s. That's a hell of a lot of land. That's the equivalent of a third of the Irish land mass. And it's the best quality land changes hands. So it's a very dramatic transfer of land. So what happens is this land is given in the early 17th century to colonists, primarily English. And then after 1603, with the plantation of Ulster, we do have a considerable number of Scots coming into what today would be Northern Ireland. We also have Welsh people. They bring with them their 
civilizing, in inverted commas, practices they undertake to farm the land in accordance with lowland agricultural practices. So they have to enclose, they have to build stone houses, they have to establish fairs and markets. And hundreds of thousands of them come over the course, probably about 300,000 come over the course of the 17th century. It's a very significant number. Now, the people whose land is basically confiscated and reallocated, they remain in the area, but they're not happy. Some are known as the deserving Irish and they're given their own acres, but many effectively have gone from being landowners to effectively tenants. And many of them are very unhappy. And it's one of the things that triggers the outbreak of rebellion in 1641. So the plantations in that sense are hugely important in the disruption that does follow. But what's important here is then the rebellion itself triggers another wave of expropriation that not even Edmund Spencer could have dreamed of. And what we find there is that land passes to largely Cromwellians, And we see how the land that changes hands in the 1640s and 50s, along with some of the earlier period, helps to fuel English imperialism. So it actually, Irish land and labour is used to help build the first English empire, especially in the Atlantic world. And it's all controlled by this little oligarchy in London, led by the Thompson family. And it's very interesting. My colleague David Brown has written a book on how they use this Irish land, as well as the labour, and we'll come back to the labour in a minute, to fuel their own imperialist agendas. And without that Irish land, you could argue that English imperialism would not have progressed the way that it did. Ireland was to England in the 17th century what India became to England in the 19th century in terms of, if you want, turbocharging the English imperial venture. So in that sense, the land was hugely important for England. And in terms of Ireland, the plantations transformed the Irish landscape because we see towns being founded, we see communities being established, schools, courts, we see a lot of land being enclosed and drained. We also see a lot of deforestation occurring during this period at so many levels. To this day, you can drive through Ireland and you know instantly when you're in a plantation town, whether it's in somewhere like Bandon in Munster or Ochnacloy in Ulster, because you've got these wide streets that are very much around commerce, but also you'll have a jail, you'll have a church, a school. It's hugely transformational in terms of the landscape. I'd like to come back to the labour point as well, though, because it's not just about land. Ireland's a hugely important natural resource in terms of human capital, but also in terms of provisioning, because basically Ireland provisions the English Caribbean and Atlantic world, and it also provides labour for the tobacco and later the sugar plantations, especially from the 1620s, 1630s, when England doesn't have access to black chattel slaves. What it does have access to 
our Irish indentured servants. And we are seeing tens of thousands of people, some going on a voluntary basis, others, especially during the 1650s, being shipped on an involuntary basis, being sent to the Atlantic where they work on these tobacco and later sugar plantations. So Irish labour comes at a very critical moment for English expansionism in the Caribbean, much of it driven by these London oligarchs, the Thompson Gang. So in other words, again, we have Irish people as the forerunners of a form of exploitation. So indentured servants, in this case, going to the Caribbean, who will later be followed by enslaved peoples working in tobacco and sugar. And the Irish have the unfortunate role as pioneers, but involuntary pioneers in this form of exploitation. You draw on a fascinating source to reveal the lived experiences of empire, which are the 1641 depositions. Can you Describe what these are and why they are such a rich archive for examining the lives of women and family rather than the men of influence we've heard about so far. <laughs> so the 1641 depositions have been dubbed the most controversial records in Irish history, which is saying something, Susanna. I mean, so basically rebellion breaks out in Ireland in 1641 and the government says, OK, we need to gather witness testimony from the Protestant settlers who have been attacked by their Catholic neighbours. And we need to have that witness testimony because there will come a moment, they believe, when we're going to re-establish control and we need to have the evidence to justify the expropriation of the lands of the rebels or the insurgents. So they set up this commission and over the course of the 1640s, they collect about 8,000 legal depositions or related examinations. And what is so extraordinary about this archive is the majority of the depositions are given by what we would call non-elite the middling sorts. So we have people whose voices, certainly in an Irish context, are very much lost from history. We're talking here about, you know, the tradespeople. We're talking about craftspeople. But we also have a very high proportion of women, especially widows, testifying. Nearly a thousand of the depositions are by women. Again, women who seem to be largely of planter stock. In other words, they've either first generation English, Scottish or Welsh, or maybe second, some are third generation who have settled in Ireland. And so we have these just extraordinarily rich accounts of what allegedly happened to them when the rebellion broke out. But also they list everything that they've lost. So you have these laundry-like lists of the goods and chattels they owned, the contents of their wardrobes, of their kitchens, of their farmyards. So from the perspective of material culture, give us this unique insight into the lived experiences of ordinary people in both urban and rural settings. Because what is remarkable about the depositions, it's not just that they're by ordinary people, but it's geographically, they're very widespread. So virtually every, you know, certainly barony in Ireland 
we would have depositions for. And something like 90,000 people are named in the depositions. So from even a genealogical perspective, they're incredibly rich. The one downside, and it's very important to emphasize this, is that they are predominantly the voices of Protestants. Very few Catholics depose. And when they do depose or give their legal eyewitness testimony, they do in the 1650s. In other words, a decade after which events have occurred. Now, this means that the depositions are hugely biased towards if you want, the Protestant colonial order. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't and can't use them. Indeed, I do use them very heavily to try and recover the lived experiences of Protestant colonial women. However, I also think we can use them to recover the experiences of Catholic women or Catholic people as well. We just need to be hugely aware of their limitations and the fact that they are a deeply biased source. We have no equivalent for the Catholic population who undoubtedly suffered very similar bloodletting and atrocities. So in other words, what we see happening in the 1640s is really incidences of extreme violence, ethnic cleansing, uh, and it happens to both communities. So the Protestants retaliate with equal violence against their Catholic neighbours. And obviously the Catholics have attacked and violated their Protestant neighbours. So they're very grisly. They're not for the faint hearted in terms of they're very graphic in depicting violence, especially extreme violence, including sexual violence. But they are quite unique in what they do tell us. And I have a big project at the moment, Susanna. I was very fortunate to get a European Research Council grant to really focus in on the lived experiences of the women and the depositions are a very important source. I'll look at the early modern period more generally and it won't just be the depositions, but the depositions are a very important part of actually trying to tell the story of women because I think what we see are stories, very pragmatic stories of survival, of agency and of women who are often, of course, hidden in the shadows because they don't have the same legal identity as their menfolk. But actually, through the depositions, we can recover so much more. Obviously, I've given a hint of it in the book, but I'm really excited about getting stuck into it with this big ERC project. It's such exciting work because it does entirely sort of underpin this grand political religious narrative with what happened in people's lives, which is fundamentally what we as historians are interested in. And I'd actually like to go a bit further in terms of asking about women. Why do you think we should see empire in Ireland, the story of profound political, cultural, economic changes we've heard today as a story about women? And what other evidence speaks to their roles? Oh, well, I just think when we think of empire, we see it as a very masculine space. And I've been so delighted and been inspired by the work of people like Philippa Levine, who have done so much to bring issues of empire and gender right to the forefront in terms of the later period. So I want to do this with colonial Ireland for a number of reasons. The first is, I think the English administration recognises for a colony to be successful, women are at the heart of it. And we see this not just in the English empire, but in the Iberian empire as well. So if you want to have a good colony, you need to have 
women who are going to raise the children as Protestants and ensure that they're going to be civilized. So in other words, women are very much the ones who are the implementers of civility in the domestic space. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's very interesting to see how the English writers, including Spencer, see the women as being the ones who are the guardians of everything Irish and everything Catholic. So it's the same point, but from the other perspective. And because they're the ones who are literally the keepers of the children and the home, they are actually more dangerous than their men folk. And the women are depicted very negatively in the contemporary writings and in the depositions when the Protestants are testifying, because they are seen as being politically subversive. They're depicted as being lewd and sexually subversive. They're the real threats in terms of creating a civil society. And the fact that contemporaries are articulating this so strongly, I think that it's now incumbent on us as historians to really say, well, what is the evidence for this? And that's what I'm trying to do very much in this new project. I do it to an extent in chapter three. And it's not just using the depositions. There's a lot of other evidence that I think has been hiding in plain sight. So to add, in Ireland, we had a very bitter civil war as part of the whole bid for independence. And in 1922, the public record office was blown up and we lost a lot of our records. Now, my colleagues have begun an amazing project that aims to reconstitute digitally that archive that was destroyed. So they've been working away on this for the last three years and they're doing a fantastic job. So what we have now is an amazing mass of digital data that we're able to interrogate in a very sophisticated way. And what I'm doing as part of my ERC is looking at that digital data. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about testamentary material, wills, inventories that were made when people died or inquisitions that were taken after people died, but also legal records. Because I think in Ireland, we've got the records of the Irish Court of Chancery survive. So those are incredibly useful as well. And I reckon between 15 to 20 percent of our legal records and our wills relate directly to women. So there's a lot of material there that just hasn't been used at all, actually, to tell the story of women. And the other thing that we are really using in this project, as well as obviously the testamentary material, the legal material, of course, then we're putting that together with the depositions, but also with landed records. Because land was expropriated to the extent that it was, that was all documented. So maps, which are very much tools of empire, Ireland is probably the most mapped country in the early modern world. And we have amazing maps, especially dating from the 1650s, when a man called Sir William Petty basically mapped Ireland. And we have the Petty maps in digital format. The other thing that we've got that, again, is absolutely extraordinary is we've got something called the Books of Survey and Distribution, which are the equivalent of the doomsday books for Ireland. They tell us who held land in 1641, in 1670 and in 1704. 
I mean, there's nothing quite like these books of survey and distribution for anywhere else. And what I'm finding is that about 15, 20% of the names are female. So all of a sudden, we're using technology to bring this big digital data to bear on, well, I want to know more about the lived experiences of women during times of peace and, of course, during times of uh, war. And I think that these sources will tell us about their daily lives, their networks, their communities, how they deployed their labour, also things like inheritance, their material culture. And then, of course, how they behave during times of war, because what I'm seeing already is that women are very much the glue that held society together, even if the record doesn't always capture that. And then during times of war, because their menfolk are away, they're the ones who are coming and running the show, whether it's keeping a small business together, a farm together. They're very important in terms of money lending. So it's really how we bring all of these sources together to tell us all of that. And I'll focus very much in the new project. So the centuries between 1550 and 1750. I'm just at the beginning of that. But I think the potential for some really exciting research here is just enormous. And it's great to hear your enthusiasm and about the sort of sources you'll be drawing on, because it's such an inspiration to people who are listening to learn how historians do what they do and how they arrive at the knowledge they have. I'm really conscious that we've only really been able to scratch the surface of the huge amount of research that's gone into your wonderful new book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World. But I'd like to finish, if we can, by discussing a very important theme that runs throughout the book. You draw parallels between Ireland and other early modern empires, the Spanish Habsburgs and the Ottoman, the Safavid, the Dutch, the Mughal. I wonder if you could share why you found it so rewarding and helpful to compare these empires, even though their scale was so different? I think we all love to think we're exceptional. But when it comes to issues of empire, I think there are some very interesting commonalities across these, especially the European empires. But when I was looking particularly at India and looking at the Mughal Empire, I also noted some interesting similarities, especially around issues of intermarriage and assimilation. And I just think that by looking beyond the borders of Ireland and trying to make those connections, it adds to this wider story, if you want, a global story of imperialism that people like Cooper and Burbank scholars have done great work on. But we're always, I think, a bit lazy when it comes to comparison. So I'm always very keen to do it where I can. For me, probably the most meaningful comparisons are going to be with the Iberian world. I think I spend a lot of time in Brazil and I think Portuguese Brazil is a very interesting point of comparison, as is Spanish New Spain, in other words, Mexico, Peru as well. So that's still very much a journey. I wish I could do more archival work, but at least reading the secondary literature, I think, is important. The other point I'd like to make is the Irish are trans-imperial. So I'm interested in looking at these other empires because Irish people keep popping up. It doesn't matter the empire you'll find an Irish person. They are particularly prevalent in the French, the Dutch, the Spanish empires. 
but we also see them in the Portuguese empires and the Danish empires. So, for example, if you go to the Amazon, you'll find Irish entrepreneurs who are trading timber and tobacco who work with the Portuguese, they work with the Dutch, they work with the English. So that's my other point there is that it's not just the comparisons, it's also then looking for Irish engagement, sometimes as merchants, sometimes as mercenaries, sometimes as missionaries. And it tends to be mostly men, but also Irish women as well. So the Inquisition records, for example, are extremely enlightening about Irish people, including Irish women, for example, in Cartagena where the Inquisition is constantly throwing up examples of Irish people. But I also think, just on a final point when it comes to the wider world, that this is where landscapes have a lot to tell us. I was in Cuba recently, and of course Cuba was very much part of the Spanish Caribbean Empire, and I stayed in the Casa O'Daly in the Calle O'Reilly. And O'Reilly in particular was probably the most important Spanish slave trader in the early 18th century and originally, of course, from Ireland. So, you know, by casting a net more widely, I just think it enriches my own work. Thank you for your wonderfully lucid and passionate introduction, I suppose, to Ireland in the late 16th and 17th centuries. And I do highly recommend your book to listeners. I'm going to remind you of the title again. It's Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, because I think it can really change your view of the Tudors and the Stuarts, but also of empire more generally. And it's a very, very good read. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Alice Smith and my producer Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.